Welcome to Heroes of Brand Protection Podcast, Episode 27. I'm your host, Daniel Shapiro, Vice President of Strategic Partnerships here at Redpoints, the world's fastest growing digital revenue recovery platform with a mission to make the internet safer for both brands and consumers. In this podcast, we will share stories and interesting insights from some of the leading experts in brand protection and anti-counterfeiting from many different industries. We are so happy you could join us today. Please check out all our episodes on www.redpoints.com forward slash podcast. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with Piotr Straszowski, Senior Economist at the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, also known as the OECD. Growing up, our guest had different ideas of where his career might go because he initially thought of becoming a sailor, a law enforcement, a soldier, a mathematician, even a physicist. Eventually, he narrowed it down to economics and obtained his PhD in economics in econometrics. Currently, Piot is in charge of the task force on counterfeiting and illicit trade at the OECD. During the conversation with Piot, we will learn many things, including a story about his attending a conference in a tropical destination only to find out his luggage didn't arrive, and, well, what happened next, you'll find out by listening to our podcast. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We're excited to have you with us today. We're looking forward to learning about what you do and how you do it and how you got to where you're you're at today. But before I get going on the questions, I did want to ask you if you if you could be a fly on the wall and listen in on anybody's conversation, where would you land and whose conversation would you love to hear? Huh, that's a great question. So when I was a kid, I was well in a school, and right next to us, there was a small booth that was selling lottery tickets. And that was sort of, well, a hobby or a habit to buy a lottery ticket every time there was a new draw, right? And my colleagues had this conspiracy theory that not in this booth, but somewhere in the city center of Warsaw, there is someone choosing the numbers before the drawing is made. <laughs> and we, that was, well, we wanted to to know who that person is and to know the numbers in advance. So to answer your question, if I was applying the wall, I would like to be in that room and know the numbers in advance. I can pick the six correct numbers. <laughs> yeah, I think we'd all want to do that. That'd be great. And when I, when I think about, you know, having read your bio and I got the opportunity to learn a little bit about you from what's online, and we, of course, we've spoken before, but is there a particular... I'll call maybe a funny experience or an experience that tends to stick with you sometimes when you're having a drink, uh, a glass of wine, a beer with someone, and you tell this story because it's sort of one of those great resonating stories that's either funny or interesting that you share quite a bit. I mean, there's there's many of them. There's many of them. (laughs) I work at the OECD, which is an international organization. And it also means that I'm exposed to many cultures, right? And it's a great lesson of patience many times learning from new people, kind of getting into new cultures, new habits. And I remember it was a long time ago when I was still young and naive. Today, I'm only naive. Uh, But when I was still young and naive, and I was invited to an event that was located, uh, well, in a, say, tropical destination, right? I'm not call it right now. It was a tropical destination, palm trees, something that when you say this name, 
uh, your mind is right now full with you know beaches, sunsets. You know, it's a holiday destination. But it was a conference, right? And on the way there, well, I packed, of course, like a shirt, a tie, and that's it, right? And I had my t-shirt and you know linen trousers, right? And to me, it was well, a conference in that venue cannot be super formal. And uh, well. My plane arrived in the morning, so I went to the event and I found itself to be very formal, right? People wearing ties, suits. <laughs> I was really, well, I didn't belong there with my, with my, I would say, <laughs> Hawaii outfit, right? <laughs> so, and I remember I was from the OECD, right? So I was not unnoticed. And the head of the organizing committee not spotted me and say, hello, how are you? And you are so kind of casually dressed. And they said, well, you know, I had problems on my way here, and I'm afraid that my formal <laughs> suit is, well, not properly, it's not ready for this meeting, right? And it was correct, because my shirt was still in a suitcase, and I could imagine it's full of wrinkles. But the guy just waved to his colleague and said, hey, look, this is our colleague from the OECD. You make sure that he will meet the best tailor from this town, and he will have his suit made by tonight, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and did yeah. you get a new suit right that evening? Well, once the head of the, the, the master of ceremony and the head of this whole event well, moved to another guest, uh, his colleague told me, well, you know, I can make an appointment for you, but it will be very hard to have a suit made for you by tonight. Uh, <laughs> eventually, I got a new shirt and, you know, like a jacket. So it was all fine. And then I managed to iron my, my trousers. <laughs> so I looked fine. But that was a lesson also for me, right? That no matter where the event is, people like to, to approach stuff seriously and problems seriously. Yes, for sure. And I think, uh, you know, sort of off on your funny story, but I think today I was speaking recently in Washington, D.C. at a group, and I have spoken there before, and it was always very formal suits and ties and so forth. But with everybody working remote for the last two and a half years and people being on T-shirts and, and sweatshirts on telephone calls, I wasn't sure if the formal process of a suit and tie still mattered, <laughs> you know, post-pandemic. And, and when I got there, I'd say it's about a mix of way people are dressing. It has changed a little bit. Yeah, that is true. That's also what I see, right? So we're going to learn a little bit about what you're doing in today's world at the OECD, but tell us what you wanted to be when you grow up or when you grew up, or maybe even what you want to be when you grow up. If you haven't finished, uh, what would you like to do if you haven't done it? Or what, what did you think about doing as a, as a young person? My plans kept changing every five months. So I remember at one point I wanted to be a sailor, sailor, policeman, soldier. That was my primary school uh, dreams. Then I was actually more into science, right? And I wanted to be a mathematician or a physicist. Well, I had not enough patience to pursue this career path, for good or for bad. So, and eventually uh, did my PhD in economics and econometrics. So that's, that was at least partially fulfilling my, my goals. And I found it to be really fascinating, right? So, and it hasn't changed. I still like economics. I think that I'm an economist, right? I consider myself to be an economist. But right today, what I want to be, I want to be a good dad for my kids <laughs> so, and good husband to my wife, right? So that's, that's my main goal. Well, listen, that's, a, that's an admirable goal. So it sounds like you're focused in all the right spots for sure. And how did you decide, you know, this profession, you know, in terms of what you're doing with the OECD? Did that sort of happen on you or is that something you were specifically targeting? 
looking back, I think it was more learning by doing, right? Of course, when I was a kid, I didn't know that OECD exists. Right? I've learned to be late about it. But even today, I would say the more I learn about illicit trade and um, problems associated with illicit trade and governance that, to counter illicit trade, I would say the more I redefine my role, right? I keep asking myself, Piotr, what can you do actually to help the situation, right? So it's, it's not like I knew in advance, this is my job. I want to be, I don't know, a tailor and make suits. <laughs> it's, it's like I have some tools, right? I'm an economist. I know some policy tools. I know how to interpret data. And every day I'm learning how to employ these tools, right? To fulfill OCD's mission, better policies for better lives. And Pio, maybe tell us what was your first job like that, you know, obviously you didn't, you know, dream of working for the OECD at one point, but as you got your PhD and, and became an economist, what was the, a little like a picture of the path? Mm-hmm. How did you get there? Right. So I was with the academia first. I was a research assistant at the university in the Netherlands. And then I remember one day I got a phone call from the OECD um, that was looking for someone for like a very short temporary job to work on, well, econometric modeling of counterfeiting and trading counterfeit goods. That's how I started, right? So I began my uh, policy career with the OECD, um, I would say, as an econometrician, right? As a data analyst. So it was a small step from academia to OECD. Once I joined the OECD boat, I, I realized it's more than that. It's more just modeling more than, you know, answering questions about the scale and magnitude. Uh, my contract was extended, then extended once more and once more, and eventually converted into a permanent contract, right? Yeah. So how many years are you now with the OECD? It's been 16 years, more than 16 years. Well, it's a wonderful career. That's awesome. Thank you. And for those for those of us listening, we have a pretty broad audience from around the world who listen to our podcast there may be some folks that do not know what the OECD is and where you're based and where is the OECD based and where are people. So maybe a little background just on the, on the business itself so that those who may not know what that is, uh, you share with us. Right. So OECD, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, uh, is a Paris-based international organization, right? So this is a public institution and we are funded by member countries. So it's not a private think tank, it's a public think and do tank. Our main role, well, we are economists and statisticians. Our main role is coordination of economic policies. It's to basically provide our member countries with objective and biased pictures of what's going on with economic policies and its various aspects. It ranges from education, labor, trade, steel, shipbuilding, well, illicit goods, but also illicit trade. Right. So my small, sure. small niche. And if you had to like sum it up as a one sentence or you know maybe two sentences, how, how do you compact the, the organization in terms of what it what it does or what it stands for? Right. So what we do is we coordinate economic policies, member countries of the OECD. We gauge them and we provide so unbiased, factual, factual advices. Let me also highlight that there are like 30 plus members of OECD. So it's, it's not like UN that gathers all countries. It's, um, I would say 20 years ago, that would be called industrialized countries. Now it's countries that on the list of GDP per capita are in the, in the upper half, right? So it's US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Korea, 
most EU countries, Israel, Chile, Mexico, Costa Rica, Colombia, right? Those are OECD members. And when you think of your role, like what are some of the, as the senior economist there in the illicit goods area, what are some of your most challenging, I guess you probably try to influence a lot of change in policy, but what are some of your bigger challenges that you face in your role? First, let me clarify, it's not my ambition to influence, right, policies. I would uh, <laughs> I'd rather see myself as a, well, I don't know, physician that, uh, that tries to provide member countries with diagnosis, right? And it's they who decide what to do, or even not the physician. I'm just like an x-ray operator, right? <laughs> I try to x-ray the situation and give member countries objective picture of what's going on. And that's the biggest challenge, right? Uh, I deal with illicit trade. Illicit trade is illicit by definition. Data are hard to find. So providing member countries with objective picture of illicit trade is a challenge. So to make an X-ray of the situation, that's the biggest challenge. Yeah, I, I would imagine. And because it's illicit, there's no public data, really. I mean, at the end yeah. of the day, you really have to, well, I shouldn't say there's no public data, but there's probably limited public data because we don't catch it all. We catch a segment of illicit trade, right, in terms of what law enforcement may do around the world. Right. We don't identify all. We identify as a small segment, probably. Right. I mean, there are no, I would say, official data, right? There are public yeah. data that were right. collected not for the purpose of enhancing understanding of illicit trade, right? Like enforcement does not collect data for statisticians. They collect yeah. data for them, right, to improve efficiency of their actions. So I would say there are public data, but these data are not, I would say, official in a sense. Uh, they were not collected for the purpose of, of better information. And maybe, Piotr, if you can maybe define for us a little bit, again, for those listening who may not, you know, quite have their arms around it. When you say illicit trade <laughs> in the work that you do, it's a pretty broad term in terms of what are illicit, you know, trade. Right. Because we can think of, you know, human trafficking or we could think of, right. mm-hmm. you know, all those things. And in your, I guess, I don't know, definition or the things that you work on specifically or maybe even the organization works on, how broad is that definition of illicit trade? Look, I'm an economist, right? And I'm not a lawyer. Sometimes I say it with a bit of pride, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I'm an economist. <laughs> Which means that, well, I realize that definitions are extremely important, but sometimes they also might set very tight boundaries to what actually we measure, what we define as a problem, right? So I work usually with enforcement people. So delegates from OECD member countries, from enforcement communities come to my meetings together with people from trade communities and from, say, industry communities, right? I, for illicit trade is what customs look at, something that violates laws and regulations, right? It's hard to say ex ante what products are illicit because it changes a lot, right? So, but I would say that in practical terms, we look at such illicit goods as counterfeit products, substandard products, wildlife trafficking, products where some taxes were not paid, right? But also fake medicines, narcotics, opioids, right? I mean, let me put it like this. If you are a criminal, you look for money, for money that is big, that is easy. And, well, you don't think so much, oh, what kind of illicit good is it? Or is it illicit trade? Is it illegal trade? You kind of weigh the risk on the one hand and the profits on the other hand, right? So 
throughout my career, I was often surprised with new dreams or new like, waves of illicit trade, right? There was illicit trade in waste, for example. There was illicit trade in sand, right? So, sure. so many, so many illicit goods. Yeah. I always think about it. it's really about monetizing, to your point, as bad actors or bad guys, thinking about how to monetize and how fast you can do it and that yes. risk and reward, right? And it's about Precisely. speed of ta- taking something and turning it into cash and disappearing or whatever it takes, right? Precisely. And so when you think of, I don't know, today, as we're people who are listening to us talk today, are there a couple, two, three strategies that you know you think about in terms of taking on the combating of illicit trade? Is there a couple, three strategies that you suggest to member countries or how, how, do, how does that go? Well, firstly, there is a difference between gauging the problem and suggesting a solution, right? I've heard that some smart people were saying that those that gauge and monitor the problem are usually not those that provide a solution. That kind of, you know, cross-check. Yes, yeah. So I can, I can tell you what are currently the strategies taken by companies to counter illicit trades in counterfeits, for example, or by countries, right? But I don't think I'm the one really to tell countries what to do. Right. It would go beyond my mandate. I can just sure. facilitate their actions, right? So, so essentially, illicit trade is a global problem. It's not one country. It's not two countries. It's usually many countries involved. Uh, because firstly, today, production and trade are global phenomena, right? In today's world, the term made in, obsolete. Usually, products are made out of components that come from many countries. And trade, supply chains are also international, right? And so does illicit trade. It's also international. So countering illicit trade is an international effort, which means that first, coordination is essential. It's coordination of information exchange, coordination of enforcement efforts, and coordination of, I would say, exchange of information on existing gaps, right? So gaps in terms of abuses of modern trade routes or modern uh, shipment techniques. So the coordination is the essential component. And apart from that, the second one is awareness raising. Illicit trade changes very quickly. There are new, really, sometimes very surprising channels, goods, modus operandi, like illicit trade in waste. Yeah, makes sense. And when you, I guess, a- approach, when, when you have your meetings and people are coming to listen to some of the data, I'm assuming that I work with a lot of brand professionals in the brand protection space. How do you intersect with those experts in the brand who are for their own brand, you know, fighting to reduce the risk and the prevalence of counterfeits? How do they intersect with you and the OECD? Good point, right? So private sector is essential here, right? Brands have knowledge that we don't have. So it's extremely important to talk to brands, to talk to brand experts, to understand what are the what are the ongoing problems. OECD and the task force on countering illicit trade are very inclusive, right? We are like a table, and everybody's invited to join, have a coffee or tea, and talk, right? So we have a dedicated, I would say, committee called Business at OECD, and uh, all industry actors are warmly invited to join our meetings. And there's nothing to hide. We don't have any, you know, enforcement power, right? It's, it's just right. trust building and information sharing. And to follow up on this question, I'm indeed talking a lot to brand associations 
to industry associations. And I see several strategies they employ counter illicit trade, right? Uh, ranging from really awareness raising through, I would say, enforcement actions like chasing bad guys, closing websites that offer illicit goods, or hiring investigators. But unfortunately, some companies decide to, I would say, neglect or ignore the problem, right? Considering this is, a, as I say, tax on their actions. Sure. I think that's the sort of the formula for why there's a need for collaboration, right, from different areas and different expertises to solve a problem like this. It makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. So Jane Durden, who is the former director of trademarks and brand protection at TTI, which is Tektronix Technology Industry, and they, they make uh, power tools and uh, vacuum cleaners, and they make a lot of cool different consumer electronics. But she had a question that she wanted to learn about you that she thought would be interesting. And what she wanted to know is, what are the commonalities and even the differences in your approach country by country when you think of counterfeits, like in terms of how you might approach one country and another country? Because everybody thinks about this problem differently. How do you approach that? Firstly, I must underscore that the task force has been the OECD, right? So we work mostly with OECD countries who suffer from that problem, right? So if you look at the map of trade and counterfeit goods, most of these goods come from China. China is not a member of the OECD, right? So our member countries are those who suffer from this problem. Our member countries have companies that are innovative and that suffer from this problem. Regarding the question, it's a very good question, right? And to me, approaches taken by countries reflect the structure of economies of these countries. There are some countries that are, I would say, rather small, innovative, and export-oriented, such as Sweden. Yes. Such country suffers from counterfeiting, but this is not a threat that happens in Sweden, right? This is an external threat. So I would say Swedish companies are those that tend to focus on enforcement. Those companies might hire investigators, engage international actions to raise awareness, or be active international industry associations. Then you have countries like, well, say Italy, right? That's also innovative very powerful in terms of brands' power. Sorry for this redundancy. But at the same time, Italy has many small and medium enterprises, right? So here, I would say Italian government acts as a catalyst for these actions. And it's very active internationally, uh, looking for coordination of actions, but also seeking bilaterally for, I would say, actions with those countries that might have bad guys within their, within their boundaries, right? There are some countries that are big enough to have attaches dedicated to, to enforcement, IP enforcement, um, right. that, for instance, UK or France. And then there's, of course, the United States that is big and that managed to have fantastic coordinated actions within the US. I'm talking here about IPR Center or IPEC, right? So dedicated bodies to coordinate not only domestic policies, but also become some sort of, I would say, centers of gravity for global policies in that respect. Yes, for sure. For sure. And when you think, you mentioned being a good dad to your kids, but I, I think about often as we're in this position of having, you know, you particularly having built a successful career, what kind of advice would you give to young people who are, whether they want a career like yours or whether they just want to be successful in whatever they're doing, what would your advice be to young people as they start to approach their career? 
well, who am I to advise, right? <laughs> uh, I can I can just think like what would be advice I could give to myself if I had like a magic Your younger self, yeah. Yes, be more patient, Piotr. That would say, be more patient, right? It's uh, I mean, it's not like at one point you will get a prize and throughout your career you just bid for this prize, right? Life is beautiful. There's many good things happening throughout the, the whole life process. So be more patient. Right? And be also open-minded. As I said, until I was, I don't know, maybe 20, I didn't know that OECD does exist, right? So it's not like you need to create your plans like from the scratch as of the beginning. No, it's be patient, be open-minded and enjoy, enjoy your life the way it is. Yeah, so that's great advice. I think that's great advice for any young person. I, I think globally, that's great advice for any young person, whether you're in Paris or in the United States or in Poland, those are good advices. When you think back about your career, is there someone who inspired you along the way? Is there someone who you looked up to as you were building your career? Well, of course. Of course. I was lucky enough to have many great bosses, many great managers, right? And I think this is a question of attitude. Maybe I was actually patient, right? Maybe I was a patient. Maybe I wasn't modest, but I was patient. I was willing to learn, right? So I, I think there's lots of great people around everyone. Right, so it's just a matter of willing to learn from those who seem to be old farts, but actually these old farts <laughs> often have something to say, right? Or, or maybe they act in a modest way that could be inspiring, right? So if you're willing to learn, there will be always someone who can who can inspire you. And I was lucky. I was lucky to have great people around me, and I can just name a few: Danis Korpeci, who passed away a few years ago. He was one of my first managers at the OECD. Peter Avery who still works, uh, who's still active, great guy from Washington, right? And John Cox, he was actually my one of my first managers back in at my first internship at Deutsche Bank in Frankfurt. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Well, uh, listen, it's wonderful to, to mention their names. Well, that's important. Pietro, thank you for your time today. It was fascinating to learn about you, to learn about your work at the OECD, and we thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Well, it was very interesting to learn about your journey and your insights in illicit trade. There are a couple things I'd like to highlight from our conversation, Piot. Number one, Piot describes his role as if he's trying to x-ray illicit goods and provide the OECD member countries with a picture. Since reliable data on illicit trade is hard to find, providing objective data can be extremely challenging. Number two, illicit trade is a global problem. Production and trade is globalized, therefore tracking the issue must be a collaborative effort. There needs to be coordination to exchange information in multiple directions. Well, that's it for today. If you like what you heard, please check out our next inspiring personal story from another hero of brand protection. You can follow us on all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, as well as Twitter and LinkedIn. Make it a good day.